There's a lot of baggage around the word holy. Um, some of us hear the word and immediately think about people. People that are always dressed in a uh, particular kind of apparel. Um, they are serious, they are strict, they are rigid, and they seem to be resistant to fun. Uh, some of us hear the word holy and we immediately feel something. We might feel fear, we might feel shame, we might feel even defensive and on guard, or we might feel curious. Um, if you are a Christian, or if you've been exposed to Christianity at some point, you've heard the word holy. Everybody and their mama has some thoughts about what it is and what it might be. Uh, but did you know that how we define the term cannot and should not start with the people you know or the feelings you have? Holiness finds its most precise definition in who God has revealed himself to be. Seems like we are in a world where definitions are always changing. Uh, consider words like man, woman, marriage, salvation, truth, love, privilege, oppression, and how each word might mean different things to different people. But when we get to God, we don't have the authority to redefine or imagine him. Therefore, we don't have the right to redefine or reimagine holiness either. Why? Because God is holy. So, so to talk about holiness then is to talk about God. So I'm going to get straight to the point. That's what I'm going to do today. I'm just going to talk about God. Because if there is one thing that you need to know, that you know, it is that our God is a holy one. Let's pray. Father, um, right now you are seated, high and lifted up transcendent, existing differently than us, but also imminent. Your spirit is present with us. I pray, God, for the power of your spirit to illuminate our minds in such a way where we understand your word. I pray for the power of your spirit to also help us to believe what we understand. I pray, God, that where there is sin, you would convict us of it but also that you would use your gospel to remind us that we are always with hope because Jesus died and rose. And so I just pray, God, that you would be with us, you would help us, and that we would see you as the high and lifted up, holy, beautiful God that you are and always will be. In Jesus' name, amen. You can turn or click in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, 
he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. The prophet Isaiah saw the Lord on the throne. And he heard the seraphim singing something doctrinal about the nature of God. To, to one another, they praised God by saying what is true about him. To one another, they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. If the seraphim were somehow replaced by people within our current cultural context, I think the lyrics to their song might be different. I have a feeling. That if we asked someone and, and gave them the supernatural ability to, to leave earth and enter heaven and stand near the throne and told them to sing an attribute of God, that they would stand there, open up their mouths, and out of it would come, love, love, love is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And if they did, they wouldn't be lying. Surely God is love. He said so himself. But the question that somebody has to ask themselves is, would, would God be love if God wasn't holy? I mean, without righteousness permeating his being, setting him apart from all that is arrogant, all that is abusive, all that is self-serving and self-protecting and self-centered, if there was no righteousness, if there was no moral purity in God, would he be able to love you at all? It is because God is holy that he is also kind, humble, honest, faithful, a.k.a. loving. You can see then why when the seraphim have a chance to say something about the nature of God, it is that he's holy. But notice, they don't say it once. They don't say it twice. They say it three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In Hebrew literature, repetition is used to emphasize something, such as when Jesus wanted to emphasize the truthfulness of his statement, he would say, truly, truly. If you ever met a black person in your life, they do the same thing. Black person sees a friend they used to know in the grocery store. They call their other friend and say, hey, girl, I saw David. The friend says, David who? The other friend says, David, David. She repeats herself as a means to trigger a memory that her friend may or may not have. Black people, this whole time, we thought we were being cultural, but we were being biblical. Repetition adds emphasis. So to say that God is Holy, holy, holy implies that the seraphim recognize that God is not merely holy, but God is most holy, supremely holy, completely holy, utterly holy. But what does the word holy even mean? We haven't even defined it. The way my early church experience was set up, holiness meant a few things, but mainly it was that God is holy, I'm not, so I'm going to hell. 
Uh, it also seemed like holy people talked about hell all the time. You could laugh at the wrong joke, and they'll be like, you're going to laugh your way straight to hell. And I was confused on why I have to be efficient even on my way to damnation. Why can't it be a left or a cul-de-sac on the way? It just seemed like holy people always like to talk about judgment, always like to talk about sin, always like to talk about wrath. So in my mind, holiness was purely about rule-keeping. Holiness was only about judgment. And I think most of us at one point may have had a narrow and most likely negative framework of the term holy. And I want you to know that if that is the case, then it has affected how you view and thus interact with God. Because if by holy, we only mean restriction and not also the possibility of freedom, or simply wrath and never mercy, then when you hear that God is holy, 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 you will be pessimistic and guarded and you will not be moved to worship. The root word of the term holy means to cut or to separate. Overall, it conveys the idea of separateness. We see it used for the first time in Genesis 2 when God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy or sanctified it, depending on what Bible translation you mean, meaning that God set the Sabbath day apart. He separated it from all other days, making it unique, making it special, making it one of a kind. Uh, there's an example I like to use from Tony Evans where he talks about how in every house there are two kinds of dishes. Uh, you have the really regular, regular dishes that you might have got from Walmart or Five below, I'm not here to judge where you shop, I'm just saying, they're not fancy. Uh, and you don't even eat special things on them. You eat burgers and you know chicken alfredo and dry cereal, I don't know. And when you're done eating, you, you take these plates and you kind of just throw them in the cabinet. It's just not fancy. But then there's another kind of plate. These plates are the ones that you got from Pottery Barn. You got these from West Elm. You got these from your grandma. You didn't get these from the dollar store. They got the little edge on the side to make them look all fancy. And you eat these on these plates maybe once a year. And when you're finished, you don't put them back in the regular cabinet with the regular plates. In some saints' houses, they have what you call a china cabinet where it lives in a whole other country in the same house where you put these plates. And it's, 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 it seems like fancy. Favoritism. It's like, why are these plates being treated differently? Why, why are these plates being treated like they're more special than the other plates? It's because, metaphorically speaking, these plates are holy. So when we say that God is holy, 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 the seraphim are not singing purely about rules or wrath. They are making a basic idea or making a hymn around the basic idea that God is totally set apart, unique, more special, different than everything. With the Sabbath, it was a day that was set apart from all the other days. With fancy dishes, they are set apart from other dinnerware. But if God is holy, who or what is he set apart from? The answer is everything. God is set apart, unique, and different from everything that has and will ever exist. To say it another way, God is in a class all by himself. There are two distinct categories in which God's nature and being 
sets him apart from everything. They are his transcendence and his moral purity. When something transcends something, it goes above and beyond it. I know a few people whose wigs are always transcendent. It's, it's going above and beyond the scalp. In the same way, God is transcendent because he is above and beyond everything. And it might sound like I'm speaking about distance, but I'm speaking about being. God is above and beyond us because he exists differently than us. God is also holy because he is morally pure, meaning he is completely righteous. He is totally honorable. He is supremely clean. He is effortless, effortlessly spotless. He is eternally without blemish. He is pure in every sense of the word. And we are going to observe both God's moral purity and God's transcendence in Isaiah's vision of him starting in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. King Uzziah became the king of Judah at the age of 16, after his father Amaziah died. From there, Uzziah reigned 52 whole years. It's a long time, and a lot can happen in that amount of time, but even then, some things must come to an end. 52 years into King Uzziah's reign, his heart stopped, and he breathed his last. And Isaiah says, that the same year that King Uzziah dies is the same year that he sees another king on another throne alive and well. What does that have to do with holiness? Well, God isn't holy because he's alive. If that were the case, everyone with breath would be considered holy too. God is transcendent, existing differently than us because God has always been alive. Before Uzziah and his daddy, before David and Moses, before Abraham and Noah, before Cain and Abel, before Adam and Eve, before animals and plants, before moons and stars, before the sun, before light, even before time, God was alive. I'm sure at least five of you have had a child look you in your face and ask you sincerely, hey, mommy, daddy, brother, sister, cousin, uncle, teacher, did God create the world? to which you feel theologically equipped to respond, yes, Genesis 1-1. And then they ask, did God create me? And you nod in the affirmative again, Jeremiah knit you in his mother's womb. Yeah, of course he created you. Then they hit you with the boom bop and they say, well, who created God? And then you feel stupid. But this is an incredibly intelligent question, if you think about it, because the child is taking survey of everything he or she knows, and they recognize that everything, including them, has a beginning, that everything is made, that everything is created. But when we get to God, he is the only one that requires a different answer. Point to anything in the world and better believe it is a derivative of something else. It is contingent, meaning something else had to be alive for it to exist. Painters, artists need tools. A thinker needs a mind. A, 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 a meal needs farmers and, and people to plant things. For us to even have an iPhone and a, a MacBook, a Steve Jobs had to be alive, and I, I'm glory be to God for his existence. Everything is dependent on something else to exist. Because we are created then, every single one of us is inherently dependent. Paul says that it is in God that we live and move and have our being. What does that mean? It means that without God, you would not be. 
Without God, you would not be alive or have life. Without God, you would not be able to move. But unlike us, God doesn't need anyone to live and to move and to have his being. All God needs is himself. God has power that he doesn't have to borrow. Wisdom that he never had to learn. Strength that he didn't have to work for. Foresight that a prophet didn't have to reveal. A child might not understand it, and you might not either, but if anyone asks you who created God, the only answer I can give is nobody. God exists because God exists. Are you starting to see why he's so different from you, from us? That there truly is nobody like him. Why? Because God is transcendent. As this high and lifted up God is seated with his robe stretching throughout the temple, Isaiah observes these heavenly creatures around the throne. He calls them seraphim, which means burning ones. It's possible that these creatures looked inflamed, like, like flames with wings. And he describes them by saying that each, each of them had six wings, and with two, they covered their face, and with two, they flew, and with two, they covered their feet. And, and, and if we're honest with ourselves, with ourselves, seeing one in person would most likely be terrified. The strangeness of these creatures, I think, though, tells you something about the otherness of God. Anyway, as the seraphim flew, they sang to one another about the holiness of God. And as this happened, the text says that the temple began to shake, which typically happens when, when creation is around God. When, when God shows up, things move, including you. In that temple, the, the high and lifted up Lord is seated, and the entire temple trembles, and, and the room fills with smoke, which reminds you of Mount Sinai, doesn't it? And the, and the burning ones sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And notice in the text that as all of this is happening, Isaiah doesn't add to their praise. He doesn't lift up his hands and worship. He doesn't open up his mouth and give God glory. It's as if by impulse, while the burning ones testify to the holy nature of God, while in his presence, surrounded by smoke and a shaping a shaking temple, beholding the awesome glory of the Lord, the only thing that Isaiah can do in this moment is confess. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When I read this passage, I asked myself, why woe instead of worship? Because God is not only transcendent in his holiness, existing differently than us, but he is also morally pure. It is truly hard to imagine a being that can only be good, only do right, only speak honestly, only think righteously. With God, there is no darkness. There, there is no evil within him. There is no blemished heart and unclean hands. Imagine, if you can, a being with motives Satan can never influence, a being 
whose behavior will never require atonement, a being that is too good to be true, but truly he is that good. Our God is holy, holy, holy. What's problematic about our sinful nature, though, is that in our unbelief, we tend to project our nature onto God by either accusing him of sinfulness or implicitly behaving in such a way that we believe that he is, even though we won't say it out loud. We, we might talk about God like he's unjust just because he allowed some suffering in our world. We open up his word and we refuse to believe it's true as if God had the potential to lie to you. But who I've described sounds more like the devil than it does God. But who do you suppose we are imaging God as when holiness is disregarded in our definitions of him? Is that we have somehow supposed that Satan sits on the throne. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus was on earth. He was consistently accused of being a sinner. That he partnered with Satan to cast out demons that he was a glutton, that he was a drunkard, that he was a blasphemer. And in John 8, Jesus asks this really important question. He says, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why don't you believe me? This is a profound statement. No human being on earth would be able to say this and be considered in their right mind. Because every person alive can be convicted of sin except Jesus. And the fascinating part about it all is that Jesus is calling attention to his righteousness, to his moral purity, to his holiness as the reason why he is worthy to be believed. Because it's what we believe about God that will determine how we behave. You don't have sex with people you aren't married to just because you're lustful. You do it because you don't believe that God is Lord of the body. You didn't take a job that God told you not to just because you're disobedient. You did it because you didn't believe that God could provide for you at a lower wage. I hope you see the connection I'm trying to make is that at the root of all sin is unbelief in the word and worth of God. And that is why it is so hard for us to be holy sometimes because we keep trying to modify our behavior externally without dealing with the belief systems at the root. And I have a suspicion. I think... One reason why faith and therefore holiness is so difficult for us is because we live in a constant state of self-preservation. We, we've experienced all kinds of pain, betrayal, abuse, unfaithfulness, inconsistency, dishonesty. We know this world isn't safe because sinners live here. So we are always trying to protect ourselves from the potential of any kind of hurt. Any, any kind of pain, any kind of suffering. And I wonder if underneath our doubt, the reason why we don't trust God and therefore we struggle with holiness is because we have a suspicion that God isn't safe either. That he is just like the father that left us. That he is like the mother that didn't nurture us. The, the friend that didn't listen to us or the person in a position of power that abused us. So when God uses his word and his son to reveal himself as a heavenly parent or a faithful friend or our Lord, we don't relinquish control, surrendering our wills because we have mistakenly projected onto God the nature of everybody that has sinned against us. It's deep. But understand this. If God is holy... That means he cannot sin. If God 
cannot sin, it means he cannot sin against you. And if God cannot sin against you, doesn't that make him the most trustworthy being that exists? The holy God is a God who is without fault, without wrinkle, without blemish. Habakkuk says that his eyes are too pure to look on sin. Peter said that when Jesus was on the earth, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. First John says that in him is no sin, but there was sin in Isaiah. He was born after Adam after all, so he had a nature that was not holy, but dark, blemished. And then the presence of the holy, holy God, there was nowhere for his heart to hide. It is so interesting to me that God is so pure that when someone unclean is near him, it becomes obvious that they are unlike him. And it isn't as if God did anything for Isaiah to be so terrified. God didn't even tell Isaiah he was holy, the seraphim did. God didn't even move or, or stand up. He simply sat, and that was enough for Isaiah to see his own wickedness. This is because as the morally pure God, God is also light. First John says that God is light, and in him is no darkness. Light is often a metaphor for righteousness. So when considering why Isaiah chose woe over worship, you just got to think about the activity of light. When you're in a dark room and you can't see what's in it, what do you do? You turn on the switch, you pull out your phone, or you, you use a, what is that thing that people used to use in the 80s? A flashlight, <laughs> so you can see what's in the dark. Light illuminates. It exposes what's in the dark and makes it public. So by, when he was by the throne of the Holy One, the supreme virtue and light illuminating from God's being forced everything in Isaiah that did not look like God to come out of hiding. For some of us, this illuminating effect gives us anxiety. We, we become defensive, unteachable, even manipulative. And it's because light exposes your sin and therefore your weaknesses. And instead of opting for the vulnerability of humility and the courage to be humble, we prefer to maintain the false view of ourselves that we have constructed, and by doing so, we may have protected our image in front of church folk, but we have resisted God's hand in the process. Whoa. Conviction is a form of light. Notice that in the presence of the holy God, Isaiah was honest. And why shouldn't he be? God knows everything. God knew that Isaiah was a man of unclean lips, and now Isaiah did too. By seeing God, Isaiah saw himself. And by confessing the uncleanness of his lips, Isaiah is not simply saying, I'm just a man with a ratchet mouth. He is also saying that he is a man with an unclean heart because it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. But Isaiah is in a predicament now, saints. He, he's seen the holy, holy, holy God. And for that reason, he's seen himself. He has seen that God is both supreme and morally superior. He's seen that God is good and therefore he is also judge. This is why when Isaiah pronounced woe on himself, which is an expression of grief 
or despair, he follows it up by saying, for I am lost, which doesn't even really capture the whole thrust of the Hebrew. By lost, he means ruined. By lost, he means destroyed. In other words, Isaiah is not only confessing his sin, but he's acknowledging what his sins deserve, which is God's judgment. And what does God's holiness have to do with God's justice? Everything. If God is holy, he must be just. And in so doing, he, he must punish sinners. And God's self-revelation in Exodus 34, when he was speaking with Moses, he made it known that he will by no means clear the guilty because when God sees sin, he does not see himself. Him being most beautiful. And it confuses us that the same God as praised for his kindness can seem so cruel. But as he is transcendent and that's different, God's wrath is nothing like the anger that we know of by experience. Wrath isn't a response to God's ego being bruised because he doesn't have one. John Murray said this, the wrath of God is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is a contradiction to his holiness. God cannot be indifferent towards sin because he is too holy, holy, holy to do so. For if he were to overlook the guilty, no matter how small the offense might be, notice that Isaiah is saying that he deserves judgment just because of how he speaks. Imagine what our Twitter timelines deserve. If God were to overlook it, he would be unjust and therefore unholy, but he cannot be anything other than himself. Our society tends to accuse God, though, of injustice whenever his gavel falls too hard for our liking. And it's because we have a very low view of sin and a mediocre grasp of the holiness of God. God is holy. Sin is different. It is offensive. It is abominable. It is demonic. It is unrighteous. It is lawless. And out of God's purity, he has delivered to us a law to all men that if they obeyed it, they would be just as beautiful as he is, but they will not allow it. So then God must do what is right. God must judge. He, he must lift up his sword and bring it down on the guilty. But here is the question that should be asked, but rarely is, if the holy God must judge, why am I still alive? Aren't I a woman and a man of unclean lips? And don't I live in a city, in a country, in a society, in a world of unclean lips. Am I any different from Adam? Haven't I eaten several fruit that God told me I could not have? Haven't I sinned and fallen short of the glory of God since I came out of my mother's womb? Not just you, not just me, but everyone alive has sinned against this beautiful, high and lifted up God, falling short of his glory, and yet here we are sitting at a conference with breath in our lungs and clothes on our backs of mercy. This is the truth. The truth is that we are, we are so used to the patience of God that we are more shocked by his judgment than we are by his compassion. For every story in the scriptures where there is wrath, there is even more with mercy. Consider Adam, who after he ate from the tree, an animal was slaughtered to cover him and his wife's shame, the first instance of a blood sacrifice mercy. 
Consider Israel in Egypt. At the same time that the Egyptians were being judged, Israel was rescued on the basis of God's mercy because God found pleasure in communicating how to be delivered. The, the, the blood on the doorpost was not Israel's idea. That salvation came in God's mind and he let them know how to do it. Mercy. Consider Lot who was snatched out of Sodom, not on the basis of his own righteousness, but on the basis of God's mercy. Consider Isaiah, who even in this text does not ask God for forgiveness. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Huh. Right after Isaiah confesses his sin to the Lord, one of the heavenly creatures stops singing, grabs a burning coal from the altar, and places it on Isaiah's mouth, sanctifying it for holy use, because remember, he is commissioned to be a prophet. But do you see anywhere in this passage where Isaiah asks for it? Do you see anywhere in this text where he says, hey, God, can you atone for me? Or, or do you see anywhere in this text where he does anything to merit it? What could he have done? God's standard is too high, but even without him asking for God to atone or him working for atonement, the seraphim come and take his guilt away anyway. What happened in the throne room might surprise you, but it's happened to everyone who has repented of their sins and whose sins have been atoned for it, is that God initiated mercy and paid your debt before you even asked him to. Do, do we not remember the text where it says, while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. That means Christ paid your debt before you even knew you had some. Woo. Christ paid your debt before you were even alive. Christ paid your debt before you even recognized your need. He foresaw that you needed his mercy, so he made sure you would have it. My God. The question is how? I want us to use our sanctified imagination for a moment and imagine that me and you and all of us are seraphim. Probably can't sing that great, but you know, follow me. We are the burning ones. And since we were created, all we've done is worship around the throne. And it's not that we were given a script. It's just that every time we see God, we can't help but take one set of wings and cover our eyes because his, his glory is too beauty to be, beautiful to behold. And we can't help but take another set of wings and cover our feet because the ground on which he sits is holy ground. And if we could use the last set of wings to worship, we would, but we need them to fly. All day and night, all we do is sing. And the song is simple. We don't know who made it up, but we sing it because it's true. Because if you look at him and remember that he has been holy the whole time. When he made the heavens, he was holy. When he made the earth, he was holy. When he made the sun, he was holy. When he made man, he was holy. When he made us, he was holy. Even before he made anything, he's always been holy. So what better song is there to sing back to God than what he already knows about himself? One day, though, everything changed. And we saw one of the Lord's feet move. And then we saw the other foot 
moving. And we saw him start to pull and tug on this wrong robe, and we didn't understand what was happening, so we watched a little longer until we realized that the king was getting up. And we started to fly to one another and see if anybody could tell us where the Lord was going, so we asked one of the seraphs that's cool with Michael the archangel because Michael knows all the stuff. And we said, what is the Lord doing? And why is he getting up from his throne? And the seraph said, the father is sending him somewhere. And we were like, oh, I mean, he must be going to the other side of heaven because the robe been on the ground for a long time. He needs a new one. And the seraph said, no, the father is sending him to earth to become a man. We were confused. We said, a man, how can he become a man? He is God. Yeah, we, are, we are talking about the Lord of hosts here. We, we are talking about the ancient of days. We are talking about the creator of heaven and earth. We are talking about the most high God. We are talking about the beginning and the end. We are talking about the sovereign one. How can he become a man, especially like the men who live on earth, who love everyone else but him? Those people that ignore him when he calls. Resist him when he convicts, deny him when confronted, and sin against him just because they're bored. We didn't understand why the Lord would get up from his seat to live among men. And the seraph looked at us and said, the Lord loves them, so he must become like them. He will still be God, but he will also be man. But don't worry, he'll be back. In John chapter 12, verse 41, while talking about Jesus, John says Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. Spoke of who? The Father? No. The Spirit? No. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. What I am saying then is that in the year that King Uzziah died, that the Lord, seated upon his throne, high and lifted up, with his robe filling the temple, being called holy, 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 is the Lord Jesus Christ that me and you call friend. That means that 2,000 years ago, the transcendent, eternal, valuable, worthy, supreme, righteous, just, good God got up from his seat, from his throne to live among men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on the cross. Therefore, it is God who has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord Isaiah might not have imagined that one day the holy God would pronounce woe on himself, being ruined so that we could be made righteous, being lost so that we may be found and rising again to sit on his rightful place on the throne. I know it's a lot of folk in the world that want us to think that everybody and everything is more worthy of their worship and more worthy of their time, and more worthy of their marriage, and more worthy of their money, and more worthy of their gender and their sexuality and their mind and their thoughts and their eyes than God, but I just can't go. Why? Because there's nobody like him. There's nobody that can compare to him. There's nobody competing with him. He, he has no rival. So if there's anything that knowing that God is holy should do in you and through you, it should move you to worship. It should move you to say, thank you, God, for being yourself. 
Thank you, God, for being good. Thank you, God, for being righteous. Thank you, God, for being a provider. Thank you, God, for being a covenant keeper. Thank you, God, for being faithful. Thank you, God, for being who you are at all times. Thank you, God, for being consistent. Thank you, God, for keeping my mind. Thank you, God, for keeping my heart. Thank you, God, for keeping my son. Thank you, God, for keeping my woman. Thank you, God, for keeping my husband. Thank you, God, for providing a home so I can sleep in at night. At night. Thank you, God, for giving me food and the tongue to taste it. Thank you, God, for giving me joy and laughter among friends. Thank you, God, for giving me all of these good gifts that I don't deserve, but I have always. In a time when everyone is leaving their faith, you don't have a choice but to hold on to yours. Why? Because where are you going to go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Who else is able to save? Who else is able to deliver? Who else is able to comfort you when you're hurt and heal you when you're wounded? Who else is able to keep you from falling if not the holy, holy God? Who else is able to keep your mind sane and your heart soft? Who else is able to get you to glory if it isn't God to him who is able to keep us from stumbling or to present us faultless before his glorious presence with great joy to the only God? I'm ending. I'll say this. Through this text we see that there is only one Lord and his name is Jesus. And if you did not know it before, I hope you know it now that the way we define this God must be defined by how he defines himself, which is this Lord, this King, this Son, this Jesus is holy Holy, holy. Let's pray. God, what else could we say except thank you? We were born in your image, but we were also born imaging Adam. And therefore, when we hear about you apart from regeneration, apart from the Holy Spirit doing a work in us, when we hear about you, we're bored. We're uninterested. <laughs> Our affections don't move. We think that we are giving up something good to repent and surrender to you. And so I pray, God, for everyone in the room who does not know you for real, who does not love you for real, who does not have an affection for you, who have just, they've just been doing this Christian thing because that's what their family does. They've just been doing this Christian thing because they're afraid to go to hell. I pray that you would do a work in their heart where they love you because they love you, where they serve you because they love you, where they read your word because they love you, where they go to church because they love you, and that through that you would use them to do crazy things, even mundane things like be gentle, be kind, be patient, be self-controlled. These are the things that are transformative in our culture because these are the things that show people Jesus. I pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.